When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala, and I know entirely too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It is my burden, it is my curse, but it is also the premise of this show. So here we are. With me, as always, is my co-host, the skeptic, the voice of the people, the little devil on my shoulder, Kristen Suttered. Hey, Kristen. Hi, Joe. I'm literally sitting here trying to remember this month's pun. I remember it, I think. Okay, well then, what what is the theme of this month? August met Erdig Erdig. It's your own. Uh, um, August met. Okay, Erdig. I need to stop you before <laughs> you have about, a stroke. I'm at Erdigan. <laughs> it's about the award. It's August. Yeah, so it's it's Og Augment Erdigast is. <laughs> is the bad pun for this month of August because, as you know, Kristen, there are many inductees this year in the class for the for the Rock Hall that are receiving the non-performer award, which is now called the Ahmet Erdogan Award. And thus, we've been talking about it for a few weeks. You will nail it, I think, by the end of the month. We will see. I but don't we'll know if see. I could, you just said it and let me, I don't even know if I could say it again. August met Erdogan. Nope. No, what is I, it? I, 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 Augment Erdogan. Augment 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 I probably will never get it. Okay, cool. You, you'll have you'll have one more try next week. All right. Uh, so this, you know, these episodes we've done In so far. My birthday month, no less, too. Well, I just like what maybe a terrible. That means you have you have better things to think about. Um, yeah. So this month we're talking about the inductees, but you know we're a little bit at an interesting crossroads because, you know, we just had someone talking about Sylvia Robinson last week, which is someone that, you know, people can talk about the significance of that record label, et cetera, et cetera. As you know, Kristen, one of the inductees in this category this year is just a lawyer named Alan Grubman. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're going to find anybody who is going to wax poetic about the life and career of that guy. So, we're going to do a pivot and we're going to talk about him to some degree, but I think there's a more interesting story to be told that we have never really gotten into before that involves Alan Grubman. And so why don't I just bring in our guest? Uh, Very excited to have him. He is a TV producer. He's also, and we will get into this, the guy who came up with the idea for the rock and roll hall of fame, Bruce Brandwin. Hey, Bruce. Hi, how are you? I'm great, and I'm I'm so excited to to have you here, Kristen. You have read the Jan Wenner biography by Joe Hagen, and this is Bruce is brought up in this book, so you have at least a somewhere in the back of your mind yes. some idea of which, this story. Which of the people are you, Bruce? We'll we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, You'll, all will be revealed. Okay, um, but Bruce, thank you for joining us and, and for talking about this. This is, I think, an interesting story, you know, one that kind of is only told in that book, but I, I'd like to get deeper into it. So what I would like to do, though, before we jump in, is just give some context as to right now, what is it that you do for a living? Uh, produce television shows. Uh, the last uh, 20, 22, 23 years, it's been mostly uh, Broadway related. We did Memphis, we did Smokey Joe's Cafe, we did Duke Ellington, Sophisticated Ladies, and uh, putting it together as Stephen Sondheim and Cameron McIntosh show. And we are working on uh, two others right now that probably will be done either in the latter part of 22 or sometime in 23. So that's been the majority focus uh, for me 
since uh, the late 90s. Right. When I transitioned over to uh, deciding that Broadway and pay-per-view and uh, streaming go together. But let's go back to the early 80s. What were you doing then and how was your role different? Uh, it wasn't. I was still an independent producer then. I was coming off of a stint with Warner Communications, now Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, it was then, t- it became you know, yeah. Warner or Warner, uh, Time Warner. The ever changing uh, conglomerate title right. of Time Warner AOL. Discovery, HBO, whatever, yeah. Uh, So I I was working on uh, uh, several projects in the cable area, the the new pay-per-view and cable area in the late 70s and left in the late 70s and then started independent producing again. I did shows for Showtime uh, and then uh, Duke Ellington Sophisticated Ladies was, was in 1982. In late 1981, though, with one of the people that ultimately started a company called Campus Entertainment Network. Their cousin was Leslie Gore. And that ah. was the uh, one of the original people involved in the formation of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But what I was trying to do at the time was to do following the Duke Ellington Sophisticated Ladies and the Rolling Stones had done a pay-per-view concert uh, then. Uh, and we had the first big boxing matches, Larry Holmes, uh, uh, Cooney Holmes, uh, Roberto Duran, and Sugar Ray uh, Leonard. And pay-per-view was now uh, starting to excite the media business. We were looking around for what could we come up with. And my idea as an old rock and roller going back to the uh, 50s was why don't we do something called the kings and queens of rock and roll? And let's get James Brown, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ray Charles, Little Richard, Aretha Franklin, and all of those who wound up being inducted in the first Mm -hmm. induction group and back in 86. Right, the icons. Yeah, so that idea then, when I was introduced to Leslie Gore, she just she said, yes, if you make it a not-for-profit, if it becomes something that is going to help the artists going forward, I'll consider being involved. And then uh, we also, uh, one of the people that I was working with- Bruce, I know where you are in this story now, and I'm very excited. Uh- <laughs> Kristen's, Kristen's clicked into what's okay. happening. I had clicked in when you said Leslie Gore originally, uh, and I, you know, I see that you are, uh, I'm just excited. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm like, okay, good. At least I don't have to be like- Talking nice about Jan Wenner soon. <laughs> I'm I'm still waiting for her induction, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, us uh, us as well. We'll we'll get to that. One of the other people knew David Braun, who at that time was Bob Dylan's lawyer, but had also been the president of RCA mm-hmm. uh, Records. And uh, David, when we explained the idea to him, uh, he thought that was great. We had another guy named Blake Lorick who was an advertising guy who said, wait a minute, the kings and queens of rock and roll. And when I explained who we wanted to bring on the show and that we wanted to make it a big, you know, mega concert, he said, why don't you call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because that's who these people really are. These really are the original rock and roll stars. And that led to, with Leslie and David Braun and some other folks saying, well, why don't we create the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Foundation and make it a not-for-profit? And our end will be strictly commercial. We'll do the television. And we had another uh, friend who was in the merchandising and licensing business. And he said, we'll do that. And we'll kick back a percentage back to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is how almost every nonprofit works. There's some commercial tie-in that Mm -hmm. brings revenue back in. And so that was the genesis of how the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame came to be. And then we hired a woman named Susan Evans, who was a bankruptcy attorney who had left, I believe she left her law firm and we uh, asked her if she wanted to serve as the executive director of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Foundation, 
which you wound up doing, I think, for the next 25 or 30 years. Right, right. She stayed on for, for quite some time. Yeah, she could say, and she actually moved her office from uh, my office to Ahmed Erdogan's office. Symbolic. Um, when, Ahmed, when, when Ahmed took over. Right. So the uh, the initial idea, at first you were thinking like just a, a concert and, you know, maybe some speeches. When it turned into the Hall of Fame, is that when it became like, okay, this is then a thing where we induct people, like it, it gets a little bit more focused in terms of how the proceedings go? Well, as soon as we went from the Kings and Queens of Rock and Roll as a one-time concert or as the first of what would be perhaps more concerts down the road, and it turned into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, then it absolutely became something where there would be an induction where there would be some kind of a newsletter that we thought that people could, you know, $5 a year, be a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that concept of opening it up to the public then led to, well, there needed to be some place to put it, but that was down the road. That wasn't anything that we were thinking of at that time, but we certainly thought about the induction. And then I actually wrote the rules. And then the first rule that I wrote was you had to have released a record 25 years before you became eligible Whoa. for the Hall the, of Fame. The, the first and only rule, the that, founding That continues to be pretty much the continues. only eligibility that, requirement. Yeah, if, if there's anything that I continue to associate <laughs> myself with, with the current Hall of Fame, it was, hey, they kept that rule. Yeah, uh, wow. which, I th- which I think worked. Uh, yeah, I think it, it does. Yeah, I think years. it's like the appropriate amount of time to properly evaluate the legacy of an artist. Exactly. So you didn't have one hit wonders who could get in or it wasn't anything on a popularity contest. There had to be longevity uh, involved. Wow. That's I got to say, just for our show, that's like a, a huge that's revelation. A <laughs> I don't know that anybody anybody knew that publicly that that uh, came from you? Well, publicly, they don't even know that for the most part that <laughs> I exist or that there was anything before Jan and Ahmed mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Mo Austin and uh, Walter Yetnikoff. Yeah, I would say the official story, I would use the term scrubbed. I think you were you were scrubbed from the official story. If you read Sticky Fingers, you'd know. Well, correct. I, I, I give credit to Joe Hagen. He did a lot of digging mm-hmm. to finally find me. And strangely enough, and I don't know who it was, but it's somebody involved uh, or who was involved or maybe alive still or not. I don't know. But he knew pretty much everything that I told him. He had learned that information from someone other than me. And I was basically just confirming it for him of whatever he had learned about how the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame actually started. So it wasn't it wasn't all coming from you this yeah there was a a mole of of sorts someone an informant maybe that's what i suspect because he just the fact that he got to me Mm -hmm. uh given that he was writing a biography about jan winner uh uh, said a lot And, and based on our conversations i knew that there was a certain amount of information that had to have been given to him and i don't know who it was Interesting. That's very interesting. So at this point in the story, you're you're kind of figuring out, like you said, you're you're coming up with rules. You know, there has to be uh, some sort of framework. If I'm not mistaken, was the design of the statuette created still during your tenure? Well, th- th- there was a design that preceded the current design, which was, I think, much nicer than the current design. Uh, I'll tell you an interesting story about the design and the merchandising aspect. When David Braun became involved in hearing about what we wanted to do, uh, his immediate thought was, you have to get the record company presidents involved. That's the only way this will really take off. He said, and the number one person that you have to talk to is Ahmed Erdogan. So he arranged a meeting uh, for what us. What could go wrong? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Ahmed, ominous words. Ahmed was a, a, a most interesting person to spend time with. And I have very vivid memories of the meetings that we had together. And I'll tell you about one of them. Please. Uh, when we uh, uh, first met and 
I laid out to him what the idea was and made no secret of the fact that this was a commercial money-making endeavor for myself and the people that I was affiliated with, that that's how this whole thing came to be, and that we were television producers, and this was the, the genesis of the idea, but we wanted to have nothing to do with the running and the day-to-day operations of a not, of the not-for-profit. We just wanted a contract mm-hmm. with the Hall of Fame for the television. And we also thought that as a not-for-profit, uh, there were other uh, areas of revenue, namely merchandising. And one of my associates happened to be Leslie Gore's cousin, who was in the merchandising and licensing business. He had his designers make a series of mock merchandise. But the, the, the most critical one was Diana Ross sheets and, and pillowcases. <laughs> and, and it was called Sleep with the Stars. Mm. Yes. It, it, was, it was more... Uh, a, a joke than anything else. Well, Amit did not have a very good reaction to that when we showed oh him boy. the sheets and the pillowcases and a whole series of other uh, uh, knickknacks and you know merchandise things that could be sold in in stores. He said, "No, no, 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 no." He said, "This isn't this isn't at all what uh, I I would want to be involved in." Uh, I, I, he said, I could never go to Diana Ross and ask her for the right rights to put her on sheets and pillowcases. You <laughs> he know, might have been right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it. I understand. Uh-oh. Yeah. I, <laughs> he didn't get a big argument from me, by, by the way, but <laughs> he was fundamentally opposed at the time to any commercialization. The idea of opening this up to the public he was totally opposed to. He he thought the idea of a, an establishment called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the best that he could see would be, let's buy a brownstone downtown in Manhattan. I'll go to Priscilla Presley. I'll ask her for a couple of Elvis's guitars and a couple of his, you know, Las Vegas outfits, and, and we'll, we'll throw it in there. Uh, strangely enough, for a person who had such a public being and worked only with people who were major public figures, he had no concept of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame being anything that the public would find appealing. Strange. Either from a building point of view, either from a location point of view, from a newsletter, from sending it, from being a member and sending in dues, from having a television show as a fundraising activity, having merchandise with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, duplicating the, and we showed him the original design, you know, which was a, a solid gold, you know, a gold disc, you know, held up by an Oscar-like person. Uh, and and th- that was not at all what he had in mind. He wanted it as a complete inside the music business undertaking. And so mm. we, we left his office and David Braun reported back uh, a couple of days later that he spoke to Ahmed and Ahmed said, not for me count me out. And David said, well, you're not going to get, you know, Amit, you're not going to get any of the record companies. They said, okay, well, we'll, we'll go forward with it anyway, because we think the idea of it is, is pretty good now. Yeah, it's a Hall yeah. of Fame, and why isn't there a Hall of Fame? It might have legs. <laughs> exactly. So I guess David went back to Amit, if I remember the story, and said, they're going ahead anyway, Amit. And Amit said, oh my God, if that's the case, then I bet I better be involved. And then he, t- he changed his mind and he agreed. And uh, we were perfectly happy for him to become chairman, for him to appoint his own board, because the board prior to his taking over was Leslie Gore, David Braun, and a, uh, a woman named Suzanne Phillips, who was a lawyer as well. And uh, for purposes of you know registering with the state as a not-for-profit, whatever, you had to have a board. And, and so that was the board. Uh, and they were all perfectly happy to turn it over to Ahmed, who then went to you know uh, Bob Krasnow and uh, Walter Etnikoff and Mo Austin, uh, Seymour Stein at Sire, and, and right on down the list. And all the record company presidents then, plus Jan Wenner, became 
uh, and, and I think a certain John Landau, I think a certain, mm-hmm. certain number of mm-hmm. managers became uh, uh, board members. And so we then uh, turned everything over to him. He then took Susan Evans uh, from and moved her into Atlantic Records. Uh, and that's where the offices of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame then went to until the building came about. And that came about, I think it's a complete shock to Ahmed. Because when the cities started to hear about it, they started to put bids in. Los Angeles put in a bid, Memphis put in a bid, uh, New York City put in a bid, uh, maybe Atlanta. There, there were several cities that put in bids. Of course, Cleveland with uh, Alan Freed you know, had, a, yeah. had a certain historic uh, connection. Uh, they also, I think, had the, uh, uh, the biggest amount of money that they were willing to put in. I think the governor of Ohio was very much involved at that time, as was the mayor of, uh, of Cleveland. And Amit went to uh, his friend I.M. Pei to design it. Good friend to have if you want to make a museum. Yeah. Uh, and so at, at this point, though, you're you're happy to have them run the day to day. You know, it was that was part of the agreement is that Amit would be the chairman and that he would he would have the board and everything from your perspective at this point is still hunky-dory yeah oh yes and that we didn't want to have anything to do with the not-for-profit hall of fame and foundation we were simply contractors and i had a contract with the hall of fame that had been entered into by the original board uh for five years to do an annual concert uh a pay-per-view starting with Mm -hmm. You know, the Little Richards and and, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's, not Mm -hmm. that we knew that we could get them all, but if they were going to be inducted, it was the inductees that were going to perform. That was the idea. Right. And five years. That's a that's an important number to to keep in mind is that you you had a five year contract to, to and do this, this was to in 1981 off. correct or 83 well, the, the maybe contract, i think was 82 to 87 or 83 to 88 something like that enter alan grubman uh, the man of the hour <laughs> who who was assigned the task of keeping me happy on the one hand and not making me clamor for let's get this thing going and let's move and he's alan was a a a very smooth operator in that he kept me fairly calm uh, throughout uh, multiple years until we got to the point when my five-year period expired and then they wanted to have nothing to do with uh, a contract even though their first induction uh, was it not until 1986? Mm-hmm. It took him that many years till Ahmed finally, you know, got around to saying, "Well, wait a minute, this thing may be bigger than I thought." And uh, uh, then they finally had the induction. They had a, 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 you know, a dinner. I did attend the first dinner in 1986 <sighs> at the Waldorf Astoria. And uh, when my contract ran out, which was probably 87, 88, Grubman said, "That's it. We're not doing anything. Goodbye." Essentially, and that was his his job to kind of his stall you to, out, was to stall me for as long as possible, keep me from you know doing anything. Uh, but that didn't work either. So we then brought a lawsuit against them. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that waiting period. Do you think that's why it took some time for there to be that initial induction ceremony as they were kind of pushing it as far as they could? Well, I think it took them a while, certainly from 82, 83, 84, in that period, they, they were still trying to get their hands on this. And remember, they were running record companies. Sure. Uh, or in the case of Landau, he's out on the road with, you know, Bruce Springsteen. And, and so this was not the focus of anybody's attention until they, they got around to it. So uh, I was there pushing naturally. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. You know, I have a contract. I want to execute and want to have the concert. Uh, but they were in no hurry because this was not anything more than can we give back something to the artists, particularly the early artists, you mm-hmm. know. And, and so it was not at the forefront of their day to day activity. 
until you had Cleveland, you know, bidding $70 million or whatever. And they started to realize, hey, this, this, this is something the public is interested in. If you look, I think it took them, I don't know, maybe until the mid-90s before they would even let MTV uh, re- record a show, and then it ultimately went to HBO, which were all revenue producers, as we predicted. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, that <laughs> was kind of the idea. Uh, yeah. you might say. Yeah, no, we we've talked to Joel Gallen, who was one of the the key instrumental people getting it to broadcast, seeing the the potential there. Uh, I want to take a quick break. Uh, why don't we do that, and then when we come back, we will have more to talk about with Bruce Branwin, the secret creator of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break, you created something that seemed real, but was fake. So when we left off, we were talking about how Ahmet Erdogan, surprisingly, did not really see the potential of a concert for the inductees. It's really interesting that like Ahmet was like, no, I actually want this to be an insider's club. I'm more interested in, you know, having a big fancy dinner at the Waldorf Astoria with like the biggest names in rock and roll. That to me is what I think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is. And that your idea was like, I think it should be a broadcast and and whatnot. And now it's both. (laughs) Mm -hmm. it very much seems like both of those things have like come to pass where we are getting it still feels very inside see alan grubman's induction this year which i don't think anyone outside of the insiders was clamoring for and then it's also this big like money-making enterprise now uh, although I, I, I mean, I guess they really they biffed it on sleeping with the stars. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's true. The uh, and, and you sometimes see or you feel as though the inductees and the induction ceremonies are built for the broadcast. Like, what's good for the broadcast? What will keep our relationship with HBO going? You know, what will get people to go to pay a lot of money to go see the ceremony in person feels like at times, and it wasn't always like this, but certainly now the broadcast aspect of it really leads the direction of of where the hall goes. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, once once you've built the uh, museum and once you have uh, established your annual induction, Unless you're willing to really engage the public and go all out, what else is there to do? So just create your induction dinner for television and uh, 
you've done your good deed, I guess, uh, to <laughs> back, back to the, uh, to, to the, to the artists. Mm-hmm. Now I want to ask, dur- so during, I'm very fascinated about this stalling period, you know, this manipulation to run out the clock. Did you at, at any point or at what point did you feel like you saw the writing on the wall? Or was this a huge surprise? No, I wasn't a huge surprise because it took several years. So after a while, once they had the 86 dinner and they rejected televising that or even staging a separate concert around it, and then the same thing happened in 87, then we sort of knew that they were running out the clock. Mm. And I don't think that Amit or Jan, and I'm speculating now, I I don't think they realized that we were not going to go away, that we would just accept the run out five years. We lost the contract. Too bad. Okay, we should be happy that we We got to go to the first dinner and (laughs) blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. My guess is they did not expect that. Not only would we uh, bring the lawsuit for breach of contract, but that it would be brought by a major music industry law firm, Prior Cashman, Sherman and Flynn. So who does a lot of music business. And it was actually the head litigator at that firm who, who told me, he said, if you have to testify, I want to tell you something right now. Do not be shy and do not think twice about what your motivation really was. He said, because there is absolutely nothing wrong with a commercial motivation to launch a not-for-profit organization. He said, that's the way it's done. And don't feel that that is somehow going to be a negative, that you wanted to commercialize something that maybe they didn't. He said, there's nothing wrong with that. He said, and I'm not going to be shy about if I have to say that to the judge, that is perfectly appropriate, legitimate business behavior. He said, because it wasn't done underhanded. It wasn't done without everybody's knowledge. It was perfectly above board. And what ultimately happened? Right, exactly. (laughs) So I think the the fact that there was the the lawsuit brought and it was brought by a, a major litigation firm that was familiar to them meant that it moved from Alan Grubman being my, you know, day in and day out contact, not that it was day in and day out. Then it moved to Jan's lawyer, Ben Nidell, who I think had be ultimately did uh, in his uh, law firm, uh, I think did most of the legal work, the major legal work for uh, the Hall of Fame from that. Yeah, he, he, he was on the board and might, yeah. might still be, but he was on the board for a very long time. Yeah. Oh, he was brought in by Young. Of course. So he was Rolling Stone's, uh, uh, I think Rolling Stone's attorney. Is Susan Evans in the Hall of Fame? No, she was not. A, she was not inducted. Not that I'm aware of. No. Yeah. I'm oh, just, that's right. The time, time, there's still time. You know, I mean, I'm we're just getting, getting around to Grubman now. So. We're gonna, is Grubman still alive? Yeah. Yes. Is Susan still alive? I think I so. I believe yeah. so, yeah. Th- I don't think she's involved anymore, though. No, no, she retired several years ago. Yeah. From what I was told. Grubman right. is still involved? I believe he's still on the board, yeah. I think he might be the treasurer or he, he you know he has some Ugh. title as part of the board, I'm pretty sure. He was never on the board. Uh, during my era in the 80s, he was simply a lawyer who represented a lot of artists who I guess they wanted him to help with the artists where, wherever they you know need, because it was an education process for the artists as well because it was so new. Right, for sure. Yeah, no, he, he became then a, a big part of the board relatively quickly. What do you think about him being inducted uh, I, 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 I have no idea what the justification for that is. Um, I, I, I have no idea. Yeah. You I mean, that's, that's about, it's about right. But particularly when you consider that an artist like Leslie Gore is not inducted and how can they hold that grudge 
this many years, I mean, what, what are we talking about? Almost what, 40 years? 40 years almost, yeah. 40 years, just because she signed on when she heard about the idea and said, yeah, this is this this would be a good thing. And she did not, she would not have been able, had she stayed on the board, at least the way it was envisioned back then, she would not have been able to be an inductee. So she was doing this at, uh, more from an artist's point of view of, yes, these people should be acknowledged. She, she accepted that. And, and, uh, and the fact that this many years later, someone who had that many hits and who was from the gender point of view, one of the early female acts in rock and roll and big acts and stars, I, I find it outstanding and astounding that she is still not inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there, I, I believe, and, and it's too bad that she's no longer with us, to, that if someday she does get in, but certainly during her lifetime, it definitely should have should have happened. Right. I mean, it, it's funny you say that she, if she had remained as part of the, the board, she wouldn't have been eligible, but I mean, yeah. Look, look at everybody who ha is either on the board, had been on the board, who eventually was inducted, and you're looking at a lot of people because you've got Ahmet was inducted, Seymour Stein was inducted, Jan Wenner was inducted, Alan Grubman this year. You know the involvement in the board, but not I mean, Susan Evans. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I. They just really, if there is a woman available to induct, they will overlook if at all possible. I'm not saying that I want another lawyer or person on the board inducted. I'm just, you know, I'm just pointing it out as resident feminist Killjoy. Uh, I simply, it is my duty. I think the list uh, uh, is long of, of the females that have been overlooked, but I, I'm particularly so. I'm particularly aggravated about Leslie because mm -hmm. I know it's just the grudge of her having been involved before them. Why didn't we think of this? Why, why did you? And, and, and I think th this, this is just vindictive. Mm -hmm. Now, what did she when you were shifting things over to Amit taking control of the board, she voluntarily left or was she pushed out? Uh, I, I, th I think everybody was asked uh, uh, to resign. I think David Braun was as well, as a matter of fact. So I, I think that was part of the handover. Yeah, I think Braun remained on the board for the first half dozen years or so. He did. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. So I and just thinking th now that we're kind of talking about Leslie, I don't know if there was anything that you recall from those early days that Leslie contributed that we could attribute to her in this moment. You mean of uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame itself? Uh, yeah, just about yeah the creation of the Rock Hall. Well, just just the the the, the not for profit aspect. She was a big proponent of. Mm -hmm. uh, she was a proponent of it being a, a public. She was a proponent of the and and uh, uh, agreed with the rules that that I wrote and I may have helped me with 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 a couple of the other ones but none of which I remember uh, anymore but there must must have been at least a, a ten or fifteen initial rules um, the most important one of course being the twenty five year the only one to survive yeah probably a good one though. Uh, so it, it just and just her involvement, we thought, would be extremely beneficial to other artists who would see that there is one of their own on the board, that that would give it some kind of imprimatur that this this was an OK thing. Yeah, it's legitimizing, no yeah. doubt. So there was this lawsuit that you brought up, breach of contract. It was settled. Yeah. Yes. On the fir first day of trial. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yes. The only thing, my, the, the lawyers came back to me after a conference with uh, Ben Nidell or whoever the litigator was for his firm who was handling it and the judge. And uh, my attorney said to me, the judge looked at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame attorneys and said, now, if I were to rule in favor 
of, I forget what company I had the contract in at that time, whatever it was. Let's call it Bruce Brandwin Productions. <laughs> was it Black Tie by any chance? It may have been Black Tie. It may have been Black Tie. Yeah, pr- probably was Black Tie. If I am to rule in Black Tie's favor, I would be making case law because this is an unusual breach of contract suit Mm -hmm. that the time expired. And so we would have to determine that the time expired maliciously by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, that would make it an unusual case, and I would have to make case law. And let me tell you now, I am not above making case law. And then she turned to my lawyers and said, now, if I were to rule in your favor and make case law, there's no guarantee that the Court of Appeals is going to uphold that case law. (laughs) So I suggest the two of you go out and settle this case now. Wow. Wow. And and that's how it got settled. My God. What a what a saga! After after the uh, the settlement, were you sour? Were you soured on the music yeah. industry uh, at that point? Like, where did your career go, and how much of it was affected by your experiences doing this? It wasn't wasn't affected in what I continued to do and what I did going forward at all. I, I was not soured. I, I was never a part of the music industry or the record business. So I never had any relationships with, you know, uh, any of the record company other than David Braun, essentially, and Leslie Gore. I didn't really have any relationships there that would have soured me. And it never changed my opinion of the, the, of the artists who, uh, you know, was the genesis of this whole thing was, you, you didn't know, just say, you know what? I'm only listening to Broadway now. No right, more rock and roll. No, 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 no. It didn't do that at all. I mean, it certainly didn't endear me to Jan or Alan Grubman or uh, Amit, though, was different. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Because he was, it, a, a lot of people didn't really like Amit at all. Mm-hmm. Because... Yeah. Be, and and I, I could certainly understand why, but even though I could have been one of those people, given what positions he took, you know, vis-a-vis my situation, sure. there was something so charming about him and so engaging about him and so roguish uh, uh, about him that uh, he was hard to get mad at by me. Uh, I remember sitting in a deposition with him and he was testifying and they took a break and he came over to me and he said, I I smoked at that time. He said, do you have any cigarettes? Can can, can we go outside and and, and have have a smoke? As if, you know, we had been buddies, you know. As if you guys were not uh, actively in a deposition. He was so so charming. We went out and had a smoke together, you know. Wow. Um, so I, I always had a, a different view of, of Ahmed than everyone else because it's his, his style. He was so stylish. Yeah. Did you, I mean, did you ever run into any of these people ever again never. after this? Wow. And to this day, I've never been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Interesting. Well, I mean, I'll tell you this. The museum, museum's good and the people who run it are not the people who do the foundation. Uh, so That is true. Yeah. I don't think you'd have to worry about, you know, supporting the the people who fucked you over because it's, you know, there's good museum curator, museum folk. I don't think would have done that to you. And they're, they're the ones kind of running the show there. Is Elvis's guitar there? You know, it, it, the, and it's more I mean, than there's a, a, bunch a brownstone of there. Could, could hold, you know, <laughs> that, that, that detail of the, the idea of a, just a brownstone with some guitars is really a, a I that think that's what people think that, that it is now. You know what I mean? I think people who haven't been there are people who, you know, like, I just think that's what they it. think. Yeah. yeah. It's a room full of capes and guitars. I mean, it is that. that. Yeah, there's also a room full of plaques. Um, (laughs) I mean, mean, he said it so he said it so distinctly. He said, hey, you know, we'll get a million dollars. We'll get a brownstone downtown. I'll call Priscilla. 
and we'll, we'll, we'll get a couple of outfits and we'll get the guitars and, and that'll be the end of it. it, it the thought of it being uh, even outside of New York was not part of his thinking at the time. Didn't occur to him. Is there anything else from this story that we did not touch on that you would like to address or talk about, even if it's just, you know, a funny little anecdote or something you remember? Uh, no, we'll sleep with the stars. I told you about that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, it's a wonderful reaction to that. No, not, not really. Is there someone besides like Leslie Gore, obviously is a very big snub. We've done an episode about her with close friend of the show's first appearance, Bob Merlis. Yeah, someone who attempted to bring up her name at the nominating committee without any real support after doing it several times. Yeah. Uh, and was there, was there a reason he was given? No, I don't think there's really, honestly, from what we understand in the nominating committee, not a ton of discussion. It's just you give your case and then people, they jot down their votes and then they tabulate the votes and that becomes the ballot. Like, I don't think there's a ton of reasons given beyond maybe the occasional like scoff or muttering under their breath. I think it's just, you know, you try to make your case and then people vote how they vote from what we understand. You know, it's just a completely transparent operation, just oh, above right. board. <laughs> um, yeah, 40, 40 years of being uh, 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 overlooked, that, that's a hard thing to do on its own without, some, without help. Yeah, you know, you know what I think did help probably was the uh, inherent systemic misogyny that, that probably has, has got uh, doing, doing a lot of work there. Uh, Kristen, I think you were you were getting towards. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I guess I was just going to ask, you know, is there anyone else that you feel has been overlooked or kind of snubbed with regards to the hall that you think should be inducted? Well, Are there people who you would have wanted to have seen get in that haven't? Uh, until they got uh, uh, finally got in, uh, I was amazed that Bon Jovi took as long as they did uh, to, to get in. Where uh, are you currently located, Bruce? New York. Okay. Thought you might be in New Jersey. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I just thought that that took far too long for Bon Jovi to, uh, because I think they were overlooked for a, a, a period of time. Oh, I'll tell you this, which is, you might find surprising. They, they waited about nine years to get inducted. Uh, of the rest of their class, they waited by far the the least amount of time because that year you had Moody Blues, you had the Cars, you Cars. had Dire Streets, you had Nina Simone, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Like you had artists who had been waiting. I mean, Nina Simone and Sister Rosetta could have been inducted that first year. So it's interesting because, and you're not the first person to to think that. And certainly well, the guys that they Jovi talked the most about it. They were all yeah. disgruntled at that they had to wait nine years and did. Okay, question. Did Aerosmith get in on the first year that they were eligible? No, How long they, did Aerosmith no. have to wait? Maybe maybe just a few years, no longer than five years. Okay. Yeah. I just, I'm like thinking of like popular rock Anal band. Analogous, yeah. Yeah, although I do think that, I think Aerosmith has a much more interesting career than Bon Diverse Jovi. Diverse catalog, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, that that leads to another question, Bruce, which is, how, how often do you think about the rock hall? I mean, like it's, it's definitely, I could see, you know, it's something in your past and that is behind you, but you know, you brought up the Bon Jovi thing. So it seems like, I mean, at times the news is inescapable of what they're doing, but how often is it on your mind? Uh, I would say very infrequently. Uh, I, I, I will read about, you know, who's nominated or, when there's an induction or if the show appears on HBO, uh, I, I will be aware of it. Or if somebody, you know, that knows the history may have been to Cleveland or ran into uh, uh, David Bryan at Bon Jovi and, you know, brings it up. But other than that, it's not anything that I think about uh, on, on a on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, Bruce, this was... Such a great conversation. So much was revealed and clarified. Uh, this is a, an important story. I mean, it, it is the story of the creation of the hall. So I just want to thank you for taking yeah, the time to incredible. talk to us about all this. My, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I want to say, this is kind of a two-parter thing. One, if you're ever in Cleveland, check out the museum 
it is uh, it is a sight to behold, even just architecturally. We brought up IMP. I mean, that's something to look at. But it, it is a a well designed museum. But the second thing is, I think you should have a golden ticket. Oh yeah. I think that's the least they could do for someone who. I mean, maybe the settlement is is your golden ticket, but. I do think you should have a golden ticket to the museum. You should go whenever you want. Yes. And also, if they don't give you that, just say you're in a band and you will get, get in, in for, for free. free. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little hack. That's our hack. Well, uh, okay. I will, uh, next time I'm in Cleveland, which so far hasn't been ever, uh, <laughs> I, I will uh, I will use all the uh, help that I can get in order to get in without paying. Yeah. Re- reach out to us if, if you have any issues. Bruce, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, plug anything that you've got in the in the mix right now, anything that's out there that people can enjoy, what your company's working on, or anything you'd like to promote. Well, the, the, well if anybody likes Broadway musicals, you know, Broadway HD, which is the Broadway streaming service, uh, carries all of our shows. Uh, Memphis, in particular, has a connection to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it was written, the music was written by David Bryan of Bon Jovi. He's the keyboardist for Bon Jovi. So, uh, uh, and there's a lot of good rock and roll stuff in that show. So anybody wants to check out uh, a Bon Jovi member doing something outside of Bon Jovi, that that's an opportunity. There's your chance. All right, great. Uh, and yeah. our listeners know they can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram, rockhallpod at gmail.com is the email if you want Kristen to see your message need to designate that somewhere in there otherwise I'm not going to forward it and she doesn't want to see it subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts rate and review us five stars only I mean we just really we pulled back the curtain for you in a way uh, that I kind of feel like we never have before uh, in a long time coming so did we just do some real journalism (laughs) I don't know maybe at the very least a uh, five-star rating and review would be, uh, we'll take that uh, as a thank you. <laughs> um, and thank you, of course, to Mike Lloyd for the logo, Yusu Kim for the music and Pantheon podcast for hosting us. I'm Joe Quazala. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares about the Rock Hall? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.